0: John chapter 8, 30 through 38. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be helpful for you to follow along. There's a blue Bible in front of you somewhere, and that's on page 894, John chapter 8. Let's stand together as we read God's Word, beginning with John 8, verse 30. <clears throat> and he, or Jesus, was saying these things... As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in Jesus. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father And you do what you have heard from your Father. You may be seated. And let's take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. In the Gospel of John, chapters 7 and 8 are really recording one long conversation with Christ. It takes place during Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. If you look back with me on chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' feast of booths, or festival of booths, or sometimes festival of tabernacles, was at hand. So the conversation begins there. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem for a festival. It's called the the Feast of Booths or sometimes the Festival of Tabernacles. And it usually came or didn't usually. It did come at the end of harvest season. So it was a celebration of all the things that God has provided for his people and you might think of it as kind of like Thanksgiving. We're, we're at the end of the harvest season, and we're giving thanks to the Lord for all the things that he's done for us. And it's also commemorating a time that God provided for his people in the Exodus. You remember they crossed over uh, the Red Sea into the wilderness, and God provided for them miraculously during that time. And they lived in temporary shelters, sometimes called booths. And they would make them from palm branches or trees or whatever they could gather in the surrounding area. And they would live in these little lean-tos or these little shelters. And so they're remembering this time during the Exodus. And during this time, people would decorate their houses like you might at Thanksgiving or Christmas with different things to think about that time. And they would decorate them with with palm branches or willow branches, to say to their children, hey, do you remember our people were miraculously saved, they were miraculously cared for by God in the desert. And so throughout this letter, if we were reading the whole thing, we would see that Jesus uses the Exodus event over and over again to point to himself. This, this seminal event this peak event in the Old Testament, Jesus appropriates so many of the images to himself. And, of course, that, is, that, that doesn't, um, is not surprising because the events of the Exodus are so closely mirrored to the gospel itself. Imagine if you were a Hebrew slave giving your testimony about living through the Exodus. You would say, well, I was enslaved in a foreign land. I was under a, a sentence of death. But I took shelter in the perfect blood of the Lamb. Then our, our mediator, Moses, he led us out of slavery. We, we actually crossed over from the land of slavery into this land, and we're on our way. We're not yet at the promised land, but we are making progress. We have moved from death death to life and now we're making progress towards the promised land and during our, our, our journey to the promised land, God has given us his word and he's given us his tabernacle. Well, if you think about that testimony, that's very close to a gospel testimony. I was enslaved in some way. Christ, the mediator, he brought me out. I'm not yet at the promised land, but I'm on my way. And on my way, God has supplied it, his word in the church himself for my journey. And so in chapter 6, 7, and 8, there are three great Exodus images Jesus uses to connect to himself. Chapter 6, Jesus says, he's the real manna from heaven. In chapter 7... Uh, just as water miraculously came from the rock in the desert, Jesus says he's the water that quenches every eternal thirst. And then here in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. A reference to the pillar of fire that led the people and protected the people of Israel in the desert. So during this eight-day celebration in Jerusalem where where Thousands of pilgrims came. There was one special night that in the temple, this is the highest point in Jerusalem, they put these two great lights in the temple and the lights flood out of the temple all into the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Now imagine living there without any kind of electricity. And this is the night that however they produce this great light in the temple that floods out of the temple and and supposedly reached every corner of the city, this light flooding out of the temple, it's at this point that Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. You can connect me to the pillar of fire or God himself who protects you protects you from the enemy, and leads you home. And so when he's standing there in the temple and he says, I'm the light of the world, everybody knows, whether they believe or not, what he's using to point to himself. And as he's saying these kinds of things, people actually believe in him. It says there in verse 30, as he was saying these things, you notice many people believed. And so now here in verse 31 Jesus turns his attention to have a conversation with people who say they're believers. That's the conversation I want us to to eavesdrop on today. Jesus has has forgotten about, he's hadn't forgotten about, but he's closed off at this particular point everybody else and just said, Hey, there's some of you who've been coming and hearing me and following after me, and you say you believe. Let's have a little huddle and have a conversation with you, me and you as believers. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says Jesus lays down exactly what separates phony faith from true faith. What separates fickle discipleship from genuine discipleship. And so this is a critical issue because Jesus knows many people call themselves believers, but really they're phonies easy to say something, but much harder to actually do it. And so we want to make sure that we don't have this phony faith. And Jesus very easily gives us sort of three gauges to look at to say, well, are we really a genuine disciple? Are we one of these people that say that we're believers, but we actually follow after Christ? And we're going to look at these three gauges together in a little bit different order. First of all, the first gauge we want to notice in what Jesus tells us is that every genuine disciple understands they were previously a slave to sin. Number one, if you're really following Jesus, if you're genuine and you're not a folk, you're, you're not a fake, you're not a phony, then you know that you were previously enslaved to sin. Look, at, look with me in the text, verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when the people heard, the believers heard that they had been set free, they say, now hold on, I mean, we're part of the offspring of Abraham. We've never really been enslaved. How can you say we've been set free? To which Jesus then uh, replies, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. So when Jesus mentions this idea of being set free, these believers immediately begin to kind of push back. They begin to bubble up and say, well, I mean, we're not perfect, but we're not slaves. I mean, we don't really need to be free. I mean, how can you say that, Jesus? And then Jesus says, truly, truly. And whenever you hear him say, truly, truly, you pay attention. Because those words in the Greek are amen and amen. So when Jesus is amening himself, before he says something, usually the amen comes at the end, like, hey, that was awesome, amen. He's, he's saying, what I'm going to say is going to be awesome. So everybody lean in, and so he says, amen and amen. I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. See, Jesus is addressing this religious group. These are people from the Bible Belt in Jerusalem. These are people who have a history ...with their faith. They have a long-standing membership in the church. They celebrate the festivals. They have a connection to Abraham. So so they're okay. They're not perfect, but they're okay. And they're certainly not a slave. There's a similar reaction to Jesus has in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is talking to another religious group... ...who think they're moral enough to be okay. And Jesus says to them, "...it's not the healthy who need a doctor... But the sick. I have not come to call righteous people. I'm only calling sinners. See, if you think you're righteous, then you're not going to hear Jesus. I'm I'm only here just, I'm just here talking and trying to identify sinners, people who see themselves, I'm a slave. I'm in prison. I'm like the the Hebrew in Egypt. I can't get away from this powerful influence. I've got to have somebody come in and set me free. I'll never forget spending several weeks talking to a man who had visited Christ Community Church one time. And one of his family members asked me to follow up with a conversation with him. And so I did. And he was a nice man. He was an interesting man. But I could tell as soon as I mentioned Jesus or the Bible or just, I could just feel, you know, that you've had this conversation, just steel curtain drop down and just, I'm just not interested in that. And we must have met half a dozen times at least and we would have sort of chit chat conversation and I would try to work in Jesus somehow. And every time I kind of got this steel curtain, And I never made even the slightest progress, and I never found out until our very last conversation when I said to him, don't you see your sin and your need for some kind of rescue? I mean, I wasn't even asking for Jesus to be the rescuer. I'm just saying, don't you see yourself and that whatever you believe in, you need some help? And he said to me, Paul, it's the last thing he said, I'm not a sinner. See, I had spent my whole time assuming he knew he was sick. And I was trying to say, here's the great physician, but he never even acknowledged that he was sick. And so I really just wasted my time on somebody who, who really didn't see themselves as a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, no one wants to be told that they're a slave. I mean, if you just say to somebody that there's there's some hostility, there's some pushback, and if you talk to someone who's buried underneath their sin and you try to expose it, even in your kindness, you'll get some kind of angry blowback. Like, I'm not a sinner, or I've got it under control, or, well, yeah, I've got that one problem, but I can stop any time. Sin enslaves by making other things look more desirable, than jesus that's one of the things sin does but it also leads you to believe that if you could just have one more thing you'd be okay and that you're very near to getting that thing see sin has a blinding effect and you just say well i mean i can stop any time i'm not really i'm not out of control i'm I'm not not angry If I could just have one more drink, one one more sexual encounter, one more dollar. If I could just have this kind of control or comfort or health or better house or a body or a career or these kinds of grades, then I'd be free. People who think that way, Jesus looks at those people and say, you're enslaved. You are in slavery. And everybody, every genuine believer understands they used to be enslaved. That's one of the things that you know for sure as a believer. The second thing every genuine disciple understands is Jesus that sets them free. First of all, they understand they're enslaved. And secondly, they've said Jesus has set me free. I know I am free, not because of anything that I've done, but just because of Jesus. He has been the person who's set me free. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now, we understand freedom. As Americans, we love freedom. We celebrate freedom. A couple of weeks ago, you got around some kind of barbecue pit or uh, with your family, a watermelon. You went outside to watch fireworks. I mean, you did something to celebrate Independence Day. Where you finally, we finally say we're, we're not underneath the rule or the sovereignty of, a, of another. We are free. We are independent. And that's America's birthday. But the birthday of every believer is Dependence Day. You become completely dependent on Jesus. Every believer who's a genuine believer, I'm not saying they're perfect, but they understand, really, all of their weight goes to Jesus. Now, I struggle with that. You may struggle with that. But every genuine believer says, if it's not for Jesus, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get home. I don't have any hope inside of myself or any other person or Any other object. And there's a common myth that goes around in our culture that true freedom is found with the absence of a master. And I would say that's a myth. Freedom is having the right kind of master. And really, we all know this. If one country overthrows another country like we did in 1776... We don't actually desire no government. We desire a better government. To desire no government means we just live in chaos. You're just saying, I don't like that kind of government, but we've got to have some kind of government here. We have to have some kind of control. Something has to be sort of steering the course. There's a saying that says, only the sailor who submits to the directions of the compass will know the freedom of the seas. Only the sailor who submits to this authority, this compass, can know the freedom of the seas. Everybody has to have a master. And real freedom is having the right master. And for humanity, it's knowing your creator who sets you free to live the way you were designed to live. That's what freedom means. It doesn't mean living any way you want. It means living the way God has designed you to live. So Jesus is the compass that sets every true believer free. We, we sang it in the song. Charles Wesley song. And can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. What's, oh, I mean, what, what a great line. Your spirit is bound. It is in nature's night. All of your desires, all of your emotions run you as the master. You can't seem to get away from them. You say, this is going to be the last time. I'm not angry. But you can't seem to get away from it. Thine eye diffused a quickening way. The Lord saw me in my hopeless situation. And he sent a ray of eternal light, the light of the world, into the dungeon that I was in. And it was flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and did whatever I wanted. No. First of all, it doesn't rhyme, so you couldn't even say it. But I, 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 my heart was free and I rose, went forth, and what did I do? I followed thee. I have a new master. I came underneath the control and the influence of the person who designed me. And that's what every Christian knows. Every genuine believer knows that they were in sin. They were in a dungeon. And God had to send something from the outside in to help us get free, free from ourselves mostly. And then he sets us free to follow after thee, to follow after him. Those are the first two gauges you use to test whether you're really a genuine believer. Third and final one, verse 31. So Jesus said to these new believers... If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. You know you were in, in prison. You know Jesus set you free, and he set you free to follow after him, and he gave you his word to help you know how to, what direction to move. So third, third test here. Do you abide in Jesus' word? The word abide, continue in, to hold on to, to, to live accordingly. One commentator says this, We accept church members based on a profession of faith in Christ, but abiding in the word proves the sincerity. We accept church members based on a, a profession, I believe, but abiding in the word proves the sincerity, and this is what how he ends his statement, it's the acid test. See, you come forward and say, I believe, I'd like to join the church. Great. That's the best we can say. You, you gave a credible testimony. But the acid test is that when we apply God's word to your life, when you apply God's word to your life, do you abide in it? Do you move according to his word? This word acid test, you know where that came from? That was part of the gold rush in the 1800s, the California gold rush. So these people would go and they would dig up a lot of things, a lot of metals, and some of the metals look like gold. So they put everything that looked like gold in a bag. And then they go into town to sell the, the metals and it looked like gold to the naked eye. So they'd figure out, well, how do I know which is the real gold and which is the fake gold? What's the fool's gold in here? And they would pour acid on it. And the the gold the real gold wouldn't respond to the acid but the fake gold would would bubble up sometimes it would just disappear if you apply acid to real gold it didn't have a reaction but the fake gold bubbled up it changed colors it might have even disappeared All kinds of people might raise their hands or say a prayer and say, I believe in Jesus. But the acid test is when we apply God's word or you apply God's word to your life. If you accept it, if you hold on to it, if you abide in it, then you're genuine. But if you, if you bubble up, if you start changing colors, if you disappear, If you say things, well, I mean, I believe in Jesus, but this part of the Bible, yeah, I'm not into that part. Or that's kind of, you know, that's like old-timey, or that was back then, or that was underneath this other thing, and I, here, here are the parts I believe, Paul, and then these other things, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. Then you're a phony. That's what Jesus is saying. Th- this is the acid test. So you might say, I was enslaved, I trusted in Jesus, but I don't really trust his word, and I would want you to hear me say what I think Jesus is saying is, you might be a phony. You might look like real gold to me. You could even be fooling yourself. But when you apply God's word in all of its ethic... And all of its meaning to your heart, do you, do you hold on to it even if it's hard or do you dissolve? Do you bubble up at it? Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. What gets crucified is my old set of convictions. Old words I used to live by, now Christ lives in me, he abides in me, and he abides in me through his word. And some people call themselves believers, yet when they find out their old patterns or their old habits or their old convictions have to be put to death in order to make room for God, they bubble up. They have a reason why somehow uniquely they're outside of that commandment. And so Jesus gives us this acid test this morning to test our souls. I think of this tragic character from Death of a Salesman. You know this Arthur Miller famous play? The main character, Willie Lowman. Low man, appropriately named. And he's a salesman, and he's a pretender. He's really not a great salesman and he gets reduced in his, his job at one point, even gets fired. And, but when he comes home, he can't stand to tell his family who he really is. So he pretends and he has a couple of boys and a a wife and he tells them that, oh, he's into the big money now. And he pretends that he's connected to everybody in, that's powerful in, in the, the business world. He, he pretends to be one of the sort of power brokers in his own life, but only his wife knows he's a pretender because nobody's paying the bills. And one day his oldest son, Biff, discovers that his dad is a preacher or a pretender. Man. Man. I mean, you do have to wonder, don't you, about how God works right at that moment. You're seeing a pastor come under conviction right at the moment of his sermon. It was a very intense scene where the, the son, Biff, he's he's an older man. He's not a kid, and he comes to his dad in disbelief that, His dad's been a phony. His dad's been a fake his whole life. And Willie Loman can't accept reality. And finally, the scene ends. And what you find out later is Willie Loman took his car and drove it into a tree. And then Biff and the mother are talking at the very end of the play. And Biff says to his mother, you know, Mom, what was the main problem with Dad is Dad never knew who he was. He pretended so much, he didn't know who he was. So Jesus is trying to help us, and I'm trying to help me and you. Many of us here would say, I was enslaved. Jesus saved me. But I do what I want. And spiritually, you might be driving your life around a tree. Because you're a pretender. And it's very possible that in your whole life, I would never know. Some of your friends might not know. But Jesus knows. And he's trying to help these people and help me and you say, hey, don't, don't, don't go in that direction. Are you really a follower of Jesus? Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, without a doubt, there's some measure of phoniness in every heart here. But my prayer for my own soul and for the soul of these members, my friends, this family, is that we would take these few words from you and John and apply And apply correctly. And in order to do that, we have to see ourselves correctly. We have to see ourselves enslaved to our sin. Whatever that may come out like. It may be popularity. It may be anger. It may be alcohol. It may be anxiety. But whatever it is, and and we are pleading for you to set us free, to do something we can't do ourselves. And then apply your word to our lives so that we abide in it, that we walk in it, we hold on to it. We would apply it to ourselves and our souls. And Lord, would you do an internal work to speak even to the hardest heart here, to the person who would say, you know, I don't really think I'm a sinner. Would you help us see ourselves so that we could accept you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.